Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a platform that provides access to the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm excited to welcome Tom Barnes, the Chief Executive Officer at Orna Therapeutics and Executive Partner at MPM Capital. Thanks so much for joining us today, Tom. Thanks, Rahul. Very happy to be here. So to start off, we'd love to understand the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Sure. I've always been interested in life sciences and in particular in genetics. And after my undergraduate degree, which I, there was a, a year spent in the lab and it was very intense. I wasn't really sure that academia is where I wanted to be. I actually took a year off to sort of figure things out. So I grew up in Sydney, Australia. And just around that time during that year, I was off a new biotech company was started as an Australian, just like they have in America, you know? And I thought, well, I don't know, maybe being in a biotech, it seemed more appealing to me. And as soon as I got there, I realized, yeah, absolutely. This is where I really belong. And and I think fundamentally it was that being in biotech is basically like being an engineer. And I like the old term genetic engineering and people call it recombinant DNA now. But to me, you know, what we do is engineering. In other words, engineering is to take materials whose properties you think you understand and then do something useful with them. And I think the academic version of engineering is like material science where you study the fundamental aspect of things themselves. So I, I always like the applied aspect of what we do. And I like the sort of the team aspect. I find a lot of academia is often, you, you follow your own muse, but it's much more, even at, at junior levels, is a more individual contributor. I like very much working as a team, working fast and solving sort of technical problems. I joined this biotech when I was there for a few years and I realized, well, I probably need to go get a PhD if I want to continue here. So I went and did a PhD, did a postdoc, and then I came back to biotech in the late 90s. Uh, I came to Boston. I did my PhD in England. I joined a company, Millennium Biotherapeutics, a subsidiary of Millennium Pharmaceuticals at the time. I was there for several years. And one of the things I began, as I began to sort of understand the industry more and more, is I realized I was, as a person, I was kind of risk tolerant. And so I kept being drawn to the earlier stages of company and company ideation, the strategic aspects of company builds and how you would do things and why you would do things in certain ways. And so it's sort of like a, a salmon swimming upstream. I kind of kept going to early and early stage companies and towards the source. And I guess fundamentally in those early stages, what I like is the puzzle uh, as it's solving a puzzle, right? You have maybe some foundational science, but you have this problem. How do you devise a pipeline? How do you get from certain things you can do? How do you build a company? How do you execute on something? So that was the puzzle that I liked and I ended up over time working on more and more early stage things and working with different VCs, Third Rock and Flagship and Atlas, and then eventually working with MPM on Orna. So Tom, we've uh, seen lots of excitement associated with cell therapies where do you see room for improvement in cell therapies and the possibilities afforded by Orna's technology? Yeah, Rahul, you're right. I mean, there's been a lot of just tremendously exciting stuff. And, you know, that really comes from, I think, fundamentally understanding something about the immune system and cancer and why cancers arise in the first place. So leveraging the power of the immune system is really what cell therapy is all about. You take the cells out of the body, you genetically manipulate them to perform and correct the issues that allow the tumor to arise. And then you essentially put them back in the body. Depending on the tumor, they do a fantastic job. 
The challenge there, of course, is in the complexity of doing what I just said. The cells are often, well, in, at least in the approved products, they're taken from the patients themselves and they are manipulated as fast as humanly possible and then put back into the patient. Sometimes patients don't qualify. Sometimes patients don't have that much time. It's because each batch is made in a bespoke way. It is costly. And because of the risks associated, the patients themselves have to have associated medical care that is itself quite costly. Nonetheless, people do that because of the spectacular results seen. So really, in some ways, our technology allows us to imagine a world where instead of taking cells out of the body to make these changes, we introduce a, a much more traditional pharmaceutical kind of product, a, a lipid nanoparticle, sort of just like the thing we had as a vaccine, but into our bloodstream, where instead of going into the muscle and expressing the viral protein to create the vaccine, it seeks out the immune cells and will temporarily reprogram them to do exactly what the cell therapy would ordinarily do. And so the hope is that you would get all of the benefits, but in a much simpler product, a much safer product, ultimately, it doesn't grow inside you. The cells that are put back inside you are replicating. It's a living drug. So our material does not replicate. It's not a living drug. It's easily redosed. The patients don't have to be what's called conditioned. They don't have to clear out their T cells in order to transplant in these engineered T cells because the T cells that are there are the ones we want to reach directly. And uh, th there are a number of other sort of technical advantages to that, which we think could very much democratize and simplify and ultimately make it safe for patients. So, you know, that would, I think, be just a fantastic result if we can get there. And that's what we're working to do. Great. And would love to better understand your role as executive partner at MPM while the day job is running or now. What are some of those responsibilities that you hold? Well, like most top VCs, there's a lot of interesting ideas always coming through the door and require evaluation. And MPM has a deep bench in terms of oncology, immuno-oncology, a lot of protein engineering, and some of the new modalities around viral therapies cell therapies. But MPM has of late tried to extend that interest into RNA and DNA-based new modalities, editing and so on. So there's a lot of interest in that space. And so the interest in me, I think, from MPM was to bring some of the knowledge that I had gained in my previous company, which is IntelliTherapeutics, a, a gene editing company, into the fold, if you will. And so I'm used as a sort of a, a knowledge resource and to look at ideas and evaluate them and to help the firm think through what are the best investment opportunities in my area of expertise. And before we jump into the exciting work that you're pursuing at Orna, would love an intro to the overall landscape across mRNA, RNA, the differences between linear and circular RNA. It's really interesting looking at RNA as a modality. I mean, in nature, RNA is very versatile, right? You have essentially coding RNA and non-coding RNA. Non-coding RNA can be really short, 21 nucleotides or long, like ribosomal RNA. There's long non-coding RNAs that could be even longer. Coding RNAs are typically there for encoding proteins. And from a biotechnological aspect, the shortest RNA has been adapted in RNAi technologies. Now, now is a prime example of developing products designed to, if you will, insert into the traditional uh, machinery of microRNAs to affect downregulation of target transcripts. And also long non-coding RNAs has also been an area that has been explored historically. On the coding side, that's, that's in a way a little bit more recent. 
I think we're all very, very well aware of the mRNAs that encode aspects, you know, of protein subunits and viruses. A lot of us uh, have received those uh, vaccines. You know, my previous company also was doing long coding RNA as well as a short one. So the editing requires two components, a protein and an RNA to work. And so the success of companies like Moderna, like Pfizer, BioNTech, and like Intelia of late in on the vaccine space and editing has really, I think, shown that there is a viability and a path to the long coding RNA. So in all those cases, those longer coding RNAs are all linear, which is exactly as they are inside our cells. But it turns out that all of our cells also contain circles. They contain circular RNA. And these are perfect phosphodiester circles, which arise through an alternative order of splicing, something called back splicing, where instead of splicing in a canonical order from the five prime end to three prime end, a three prime splice donor actually splices to an upstream splice acceptor and creates a circle out of the intervening exon. So this happens a lot in nature. And there's definitely groups that have been studying this. This has been known for some time. And what the true function is, is not entirely clear. What we do is something quite different. And it also actually relates a little bit to our origin story in a way. So um, one of the things that was known about circles is that they're relatively stable inside cells because a lot of circles are degraded from the ends in. And of course, the circle doesn't have an end. Of course, the circle is still susceptible to degradation from within, as is every RNA. But certainly, they don't have ends. And so Warner's story really begins... It's kind of classic, really, begins at MIT. We have a graduate student, Alex Wessel-Hopton, a PI, Dan Anderson, asking a really uh, a blue sky academic question. It's like, well, circles look interesting. They have these properties. But to the extent that people have dabbled in that before, there have been challenges in making them efficiently, in making them large enough to do something useful. And then if you are making them large enough, are they useful? Can you do something with them? So one PhD later, Alex and Dan had created some very elegant answers and very elegant technological solutions to that and answered everything in the positive. And so uh, IP was filed, company formed, and that company went off in search of funds. So enter NPM. This was all before my time. I saw the potential. And NPM had a longstanding interest, as I said before, in immuno-oncology and asked the question, well, if we could deliver these circles into immune cells, could we do something really interesting and very disruptive in that space? That was the question asked. And so the NPM provided the seed funding, and then the team began to grow and began to be built under the founding CEO, which was Shin Fuse, who's a managing director at NPM. And after about six months or so, I came along. And during the seed stage, what we're really trying to do is to move from where we were, which was an academic proof of concept, which had attracted the funding to what I would call more of an industry technical proof of concept where we can really make sure we have enough of the pieces in place with the appropriate IP, with the appropriate licenses to do what we need to do and ultimately do a little bit of a test to see whether there was a there there with respect to delivering to immune cells. At the same time, we're also continuing to improve the technology behind the circles themselves. And by the way, maybe just a little note on terminology. The historical circles that have been studied in cells are called circ RNA or circ for circular RNA. Because our circles are entirely engineered, they're not made that way, they're made in vitro. We control every nucleotide and they function differently. We felt it was appropriate just to distinguish the literature to create a new term to describe our circles. And so we call them ORNAs. So during the time that we were doing seed, we were improving the ORNA production process substantially and the ORNA expression, expression from a circle. 
And we also found and validated an immune delivery solution. So when we had achieved essentially enough, when we'd converted the state of the company from a question of whether we can do this to simply an engineering problem, again, tying it back to sort of my interest, it looks like we can do this. Now we just have to tune it up. We just have to get the quantitation right. It can be done. Can we do it enough? So it becomes more of an engineering and measurement problem. Well, that's the right time to bring in a Series A to really expand what you're doing and expand the team. And so we raised our Series A, we announced it earlier this year in February. And so where we are right now is we continue to improve our technology and expand. We're building out our pipeline. We're refining our technology. And having come out of stealth from a sort of an existence basis back in February, we're we're looking forward to coming out of sort of a scientific stealth mode and really show the world what we've been working on in the meantime, which I think is pretty exciting. Great. Thanks for that helpful primer, Tom. Just going back to the Series A announcement, saw that you were backed by strategic investors like BMS, Kite, Niebuhr, et cetera. And would just love to hear from you about you know, what are some of the advantages of being backed by strategic investors in the early days? And what are some of the most compelling aspects of doing so? That's a great question. Let's start with something that's compelling. I think one of the things we've been working on through 2020 was to convince ourselves that the idea that we could deliver an mRNA with a lipid nanoparticle to immune cells and essentially deliver the functionality of a CAR-T but without doing it through cells, but just doing it directly through something that's much more pharmaceutical, much more dose responsive, hopefully much safer, much cheaper, much easier, everything. That we were trying to convince ourselves of that. And I think what the presence of the strategics indicators, which looks like we were able to convince a few others of that as well. And it's notable that the strategics that you mentioned are all those that have pioneered cell therapy. And I think the significance of that is that it seems like we have something that people feel like they don't want to be too far away from in case we really do press forward. Because I think there's a real chance here that what we're doing could be completely disruptive to cell therapies. We could, again, not to um, make too much of a hype statement, but we could certainly make much of immunocell therapy obsolete if we're successful, certainly marginalize it in terms of what we're trying to do. And the advantage, of course, in having those investors so close is they are clearly very close to our story. They're seeing our story emerge in real time. And to the extent that they get to a point where they've seen enough and they may want to talk to us about being engaging with us in some sort of partnership, then they're obviously right there. We don't have to go find them. And would love to understand, you know, where are you now from a team size perspective, anticipated growth that you're foreseeing over the next 12 to 24 months? Yeah, so we're uh, a little over 40 people right now. We're growing, I would say, at the pace that we need to grow. So it's as quickly as we can hire people. You know, one of the, one of the great excitements in being in Cambridge is the intensity of biotech life here. You know, that also increases some of the challenges in recruiting. I often say it's kind of like a rainforest here. It's the ecosystem. We're all competing for scarce resources, photons of light, molecules of water. And so every species that survives in a rainforest is highly adapted to its niche and is competing very heavily. And that, what that drives is perfection and diversity. And so I think if you want to succeed in Cambridge, you have to be very good in every level. You have to have great investors, have to have a great story. It has to be exciting, has to be compelling. And fundamentally, you're competing for talent. That's one of the resources. And so you've got to have all those things in place to be able to build your talent. So we're bringing in people, you're in really great people as fast as we can. Other challenge, of course, in the space is space in Cambridge. Uh, and you're looking further and further out now in terms of securing your space in anticipation of your ongoing growth. 
So we're just trying to uh, get to the clinic as quickly as we can and hire all the people necessary to build out the team that will enable us to do that. And on the point of talent, and there's been lots of talk about this talent crisis that we're facing as a, as a sector right now, given how much capital is being invested across the life sciences sector. I'm curious what you have seen work well over the last 16, 17 months or so during the pandemic that has worked well for you. And where do you think there remains room for improvement across the sector as well? Yeah, I would say it certainly has not hurt us that we're an RNA company and RNA is having its moment right now. But that's just one of those lucky things, I think, that has uh, worked out very well for us. Uh, I would say it also doesn't hurt that we have a cool name, ORNA. I think, you know, and I, I say that's sort of flippantly, but it's, it's also, I think, a little bit real. I think, you know, RNA is a next generation version of mRNA. I think not just because uh, we're trying to brand it thus, but because it actually is. We think the advantages of circles, the fact that they can be made much more cheaply, it's a more of a technical point, but making an mRNA molecule is a complicated process and has a certain expense associated with it. It turns out if you make circles the way we make circles, it's substantially cheaper. It could be 10 times cheaper, takes fewer resources to make. And so we, for example, are scaling very, very rapidly in terms of how much we can make. So I think, you know, ORNA is a real thing. I think it, it's cool both uh, as a brand as well as in reality in terms of what we think it can do in the end. So I think we just are fortunate that we're tapping into the zeitgeist of RNA these days, that's been helpful. But certainly, you know, you have names like NPM associated with the company and Dan Anderson as, as a PI is associated with the company. And, you know, these are very big names. So I think it's also pedigree also helps. It's always been true. I think for startups, you know, the, the better the pedigree of the company, I think the more people will dwell, let's say, on you as a, as a website or as a concept and think, hmm, maybe I could see myself there. Great. And on that point, you know, over the last 17 months, we've all kind of fundamentally changed how we work. And I'm curious if there are any lessons learned from your perspective, either from a management perspective of how to manage a team in this environment that you're willing to share, and also perhaps some of the silver linings that you've observed that you think should last long after the pandemic is over. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, in the lab, you know, little bits of liquid aren't going to move themselves. So uh, somebody has to be there to do that. And, you know, the stage we're at very much depends upon lab work. The bleeding edge of where we are is very much in the lab. So that was a challenge, but we had just a fantastic team who really stepped up through 2020 and not only came in, but really moved the ball down the field in terms of advancing the platform, making improvements. I mean, it was really a spectacular effort. So really, it's less about anything I did, I think, but really just the teams, will, the, the people involved who are willing to join the company during the pandemic and who are willing to come in and do the work. So that was really an extraordinary effort from everybody. Obviously, we did what everyone, I think, was doing in that times, so and we used Zoom a lot to just be social as well as simply just communicate. I think one of the long-term consequences, and this is probably true for everybody, is that the sense of a barrier of remote working as a viable alternative has really been eroded. So there is no barrier to remote working. So I think the idea that people may be, you know, depending on, on their role, could be just anywhere, and that's okay. So I think that certainly ha has reduced some of the burdens. Typically, you always would have to travel. I mean, there was very much the expectation, meeting someone outside your company, you would have to travel there, for example. And there's, there was a lot of time spent traveling. I think, you know, when we did our Series A, that would have been quite an involved process. 
But we got that done, I would say, pretty efficiently at the end of the day because everyone was very comfortable just being remote. That's the kind of process I think that lends itself very much to the remote work. And Tom, one question for our younger listeners that we often ask is, what piece of advice would you give your younger self? You've been in the biotech sector for for quite some time across a range of spaces as well as company sizes. As you, if you've taken a moment to reflect on on your career, what is something that you wish you knew earlier on that you would communicate to your younger self and to some of our younger listeners? That's an interesting question. One of the things that I think making decisions about what to do in your life hardest is how well you know yourself. And, you know, it's very hard to know yourself, I found. Uh, Even if you wonder about yourself a lot, uh, it sometimes takes many years to truly understand the things you're good at and things you're not good at. I think when we're young, we tend to think that we would like things or that we should do things. And only over time, you realize that maybe the right answer is something different. So I found for me, you're always doing, I think John Lennon said, you know, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. And I think that sort of describes my career as well. You know, you, you make a plan, you think, well, it sounds like the right idea and you do it. And then along the way, you sort of realize, oh, I don't know that that was really the right idea. But I think the thing is also not to beat yourself up over this. You make the best decision you can make at the time. And if you learn and learn about yourself, then you self-correct, you course correct, and you figure it out as you go. I think you just have to be open to self-discovery in a way. At least for me, that's the advice I'd give myself. Insightful response, Tom. Thanks for sharing. One last question, given your role at MPM, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the current fundraising environment across biotech, what you're excited by, and you know any challenges that you foresee. There's a lot of money around, uh, for sure. And I think that, you know, the discriminating investors still maintain standards. So it's less about finding money, but still finding quality ideas and quality teams to execute on those ideas. You could say, in a way, that's always been true. And so that's still true today. I think you see more and more people prepared to embrace very big ideas because the money is there. So if the idea actually can withstand, you know, very large investments, then people are doing that more and more. And NPM's done a couple of those as well. One is, is more traditional, I would say. And I mean, it's uh, very much of its day in terms of the size of its Series A. It's a little bit larger than average, but it's not crazy. I would say, you know, and it relates to why is there so much? It's not just money chasing a limited number of ideas. It's money chasing a lot of really great ideas in many cases, because biology is is yielding its secrets. You know, the biological world is yielding its secrets and the technological applications of the things being discovered. You know, people are always looking for an angle. Could this be used? Could this be turned into a tool? Could the tool be turned into a product? Could we do something for patients? So I just think the number of points of entry into the space have, has multiplied almost to a bewildering number of opportunities. So it, it almost, almost becomes harder sifting through it. But I think, you know, the good shops always can attract good team and good minds to evaluate. Great. Well, on that note, Tom, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing the exciting work that the Orna Therapeutics team is pursuing. We look forward to having you back on as your pipeline progresses. Thanks, Rahul. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. 
Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.